We're going to come today to one of the most dramatic moments of the Bible, uh, one of the most dramatic moments not just of the Old Testament, just but just of the history of God's people. And, and so we're going to look at Exodus 12, that'll be our main focus for today, but just to recap last week's main thrust, the main points, this, this dynamic of, of God operating in a way that perhaps is uncomfortable for, for us to think about. We said last week that God didn't carve out a niche for his people to worship freely in the midst of of other gods. He didn't simply demand equal rights for Israel. That actually, he made a demand of, of the nation. And that was quite simple, that there are to be no other gods but me. We wrestled last week as well with the big questions. How can a gradual destruction of a nation bear fruit? Uh, And where do we find the God of love in the midst of these plagues, especially the 10th plague? We're going to unpack that a little bit today. Uh, We looked again uh, as well at the the dynamic of God's purpose in unleashing the plagues and God's heart motivation behind what was going on. God's purpose being that he was looking to execute judgment on the, the seen realm and the unseen realm, that he wanted to, uh, I guess, unveil the elaborate lies that the Egyptians had built their society on, the the supernatural out of sight, but revealed in plain sight influence that was going on in in the hearts, the minds, the nation. So that was God's God's purpose in unleashing the plagues. What about God's heart motivation? Well, we said last week as well, it was to set his people free. That's God's heart motivation for all of humanity, to set people free. And we know from Egypt, from Babylon, from Rome, from idolatry, from sin, from falsehood. And so what we have is a nation of people in Egypt who are who are enslaved, they're enslaved to other gods. And we touched on Deuteronomy 32 and how there is an unseen realm. Nations under the influence of supernatural beings masquerading as, as gods. So when we say God wants to set people free, he wants to set them free from that influence as well. He wants to set them free from the lie that was was instigated in the garden. Genesis 3 verse 5, we touched on last week as well, that that uh, you shall not surely die. You eat the fruit, you will become like God. And that is so appealing to so many people. We also noted that the Egyptians could be God's portion as well. The invitation to, to grace, the invitation to mercy, it's not just limited to the people of Israel, but it's, it's offered to the nations. How do we know that? Well, we know that from the simple fact that even back in Exodus, and we'll look at chapter 12 today, we'll, we'll nod to this in a moment, but 
There was a multitude that left, and some of those multitude were not, might we say, not Israeli. They were, they were not part of the nation of Israel. They became part of the nation of Israel. And that must have been out of some level of affiliation to the people who were leaving, whether it was in, in, um, in honour of the people or in honour of the God that they were serving, the God that they had seen demonstrated with their very own eyes. So today we're going to look at Exodus chapter 12. We could say this is the tipping point in, in the, the story, in the events as a whole. It's also a tipping point in, in the history of, of Israel. Tipping points are, are something we're all familiar with, I'm sure. There always comes a time when there's a fundamental shift happening in, in circumstance and, and because of that shift, a decision has to be made, a decision that perhaps is a new direction. For all of us listening, there has been at least one significant tipping point in our lives where we have chosen that we have determined it was right to follow Jesus rather than any other way. We could picture it as the truth breaks through the the cloud or the barrier of lies, of confusion, of apathy in our lives and our lives are changed forever. And you, in that moment, become part of what we would say is the oldest, the, the original and, of course, the eternal way of God. And that's a great example of a positive tipping point from, from darkness to life. When you feel so forced or compelled to do something that goes against everything perhaps you believed in the past. Now this moment, even that very statement that I've made, raises ethical questions. This idea of being forced and compelled to do something that goes against everything you previously believed and held to. It raises serious ethical questions and when we plant ourselves firmly in Egypt and in the midst of the plagues, and, and in particular with the final plague, we have to be willing to ask the ethical questions, but ask them in a godly way, through the lens of faith. We said that sometimes the hardest hearts must be shaken the most. The hardest hearts must be shaken the most. And why is that? Well, I believe, again, looking through the godly lens, the hardest hearts shaken the most because... God's hope is that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. And so the shaking can be done for the purpose of, of repentance, of relenting from the old way and embracing the new. But it can also be, and as we see throughout the history of, of God's people and people of the nations, it can be for the purpose of teaching others a lesson. So this ethical question is then rooted in in a, in a hugely important question, and that is, can force to compel someone to go against everything they believe, can it ever be a good thing and can it ever be justified? Can force, the use of force to compel someone to go against everything they believe ever be a good thing? And, and to answer that, we have to look through a godly lens. And perhaps answer the question by saying only if the one exercising force has the highest moral authority and motive. Now any other kind of force, any other kind of 
compulsion will be tainted by sin or by improper motives. So we then settle on this simple answer, and that is that can God be justified in using force to compel someone to go against everything they have believed? Can that be seen as good? When we compare it to government, can can the government use force to compel? Well, yes, it can, and, and sometimes, in some regards, it should. Uh, when, when the motive is, is good, the challenge with that is it's not always as cut and dry because things are blurred. There is, uh, there is sin involved. The motive of, of some might per- be perceived as pure, but actually the impact on others might be perce- perceived as inappropriate. So it's not a simple question to answer when we think about on the ground in amongst the midst of a fallen humanity, but can God use force to compel those uh, to go against what they previously believed? And is it justified? And I would propose that the answer to that is it is justified simply because he is absolutely just. That God, because of who he is, because he is absolutely good and has has absolute perfect motive, is justified in using force to compel those who are not living as he would desire or determine. He can compel them to, to change direction. What we see on the ground in Egypt, the, the seen reality is actually, and we mentioned this last week, is actually the outworking of what's going on in the unseen realm. The people on the ground are simply choosing which side of the heavenly battle to swear allegiance to. And so what we have is a nation established under the guide and rule of false gods that are being manipulated or, or are a front for the, the angelic realm, the fallen angelic realm, the fallen angelic dynamic that, uh, that is perpetuating the Genesis 3 verse 5 uh, deception out on the ground. The people on the ground simply are choosing to swear allegiance to, to that side in, in a heavenly battle. Um, and, and just to add in that, that's why there has to be grace as we walk out our faith in the midst of the world. Because a lot of people don't realise that they're actually swearing allegiance to, to a heavenly unseen reality. And I think that's one of the reasons why God, in fact I'm convinced it's one of the reasons why God poured out the plagues he did to humble the gods, the small g gods, in public to give the people of Egypt insight into what was actually going on. The reality they were living in was so ingrained in their culture, in their hearts and in their minds that everything that they were worshipping and following was simply uh, a facade of, of, of power that had exalted itself up to the place of God and therefore it must be shaken in order for people's eyes to be opened to the truth. And what we see in Egypt is the more these things are shaken, the more the people dig in, the more they reject, the more therefore things have to escalate to this tipping point that we touched on.
So let's look at that tipping point that happens in this series of events. We're going to read Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 to 40. And this is a hard, a hard portion for us to read, and we don't want to, again, have a shallow interpretation, and we don't want to avoid the complexities of what we're about to read. Let's pray before we, we hear it. Father, open our eyes and our hearts. Help us to see God beyond the shallow surface reading to understand the depths of what is going on and why this was necessary. Help us to keep front and centre our understanding, God, of your character and nature through all of this. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 to 40. Now at midnight the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, every firstborn of the livestock. During the night Pharaoh got up, he along with all of his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud wailing across Egypt because there wasn't a house without someone dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron during the night and said, Get out immediately from among my people, both you and the Israelites, and go, worship the Lord as you have said. Take even your flocks and your herds as you asked and leave, and also bless me. Now the Egyptians pressured the people in order to send them quickly out of the country, for they said, we're all going to die. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, with their kneading bowls wrapped up in their clothes on their shoulders. The Israelites acted on Moses' word and asked the Egyptians for silver and gold items and for clothing. And the Lord gave the people such favour with the Egyptians that they gave them what they requested. In this way, they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites travelled from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 able-bodied men on foot besides their families. A mixed crowd also went up with them, along with a huge number of livestock, with both flocks and herds. The people baked the dough they had brought out of Egypt into unleavened loaves, since they had no yeast. For when they were driven out of Egypt, they could not delay and had not prepared provisions for themselves. The time that the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. So there we go. Just to note there, of course, Exodus 12, verse 38. It's worth worth looking at that and, and digging into that yourselves. So this was literally the last straw. And as we say, it's not an easy read for us to to go through. And we we cannot skim over the ethics of this. The questions that are raised uh, do pose a challenge. But I think that actually we can offer some substantive answers to the questions, ethical questions that are raised. For example, why go to this level of intervention? Why go to this level of intervention? Even although we have said sometimes the hardest hearts must be shaken the most. Why go to this level of intervention? Well, I was asking that very question this past week. And the sense that I got in response to that as I was contemplating and meditating on it was simply that sometimes, often actually, the only suitable response to a relentless attacker is significant force. Sometimes the only suitable response to a relentless attacker is significant force. 
Sometimes, and we might say often, there comes a point when justice requires force to put an end to tyranny. So, there is one answer, but let's dig deeper into the ethics, why the children? As a father, I I struggle with this, of course, I think we all do, the ethics of why the children? But again, we have to place this in its context. And we have to remind ourselves, what was the vehicle of choice or the method meted out by the Egyptians to the Israelites at the time of Moses' birth? How did the Egyptians seek to dominate over the Israelites? What did they choose to do? They chose to kill every firstborn male. They actually established it within the culture. It was established in the culture. And whilst this, of course, makes hard reading for us, I think what we can see in this is the, the, this, the sobering example of what you sow, you will reap. The, the nation's decision to destroy God's children and the subsequent lack of repentance for that act, even after all of God's demonstrations of power, essentially comes back full circle in a final act of, of judgment, as hard as this is for us to think about. Now, on the one hand, we say, what about the children? And the only dynamic I can find in my own uh, limited understanding of this is just to remind myself that the children were translated into heaven. The children were taken before the throne of God. The children, in essence, were innocent. They were innocent in the sense that they had not wronged. Now, I believe that we're all born into to sin. I do believe that. I believe that we're all born with the, the in, incapacity to save ourselves, the lack of capacity to save ourselves. Um, but I do believe also that, that because God is a just God, that if people are not able to or have the capacity to respond to God's reality through creation, uh, Romans 1, the testifying of nature, and of course through to responding to Christ, I believe that there is there is uh, room in, in the in the in the heart of God to welcome children into heaven. And, and that was certainly uh, very, very firm in Jewish thought as well. And, and you know, I'm confident of that. So the children, in, a, in essence, really were, were translated into heaven and, and, and spared from a life in a nation of false worship. But we could also extend the question, why not just limit this to Pharaoh's household? It did say that it was Pharaoh's household. It was, uh, it was people beyond Pharaoh's household, his officials, down even to the people who were in prison. It impacted the whole nation. Why did it impact the whole nation? Well, we could argue that judgment can and will fall on a nation that is complicit in evil. How was the nation of Egypt complicit in the evil that was meted out towards the Israelites at the time of Moses' birth. Well, what we see is that the nation participated in the evil. They participated in the evil. 
They were complicit in it, either through active participation or passive participation. Because you can actively involve yourself in evil, or you can be willfully ignorant and turn a blind eye to evil and therefore be complicit in it as well. I watched a documentary recently on the Holocaust uh, and it was a fascinating documentary on the people who were escorted from their homes into the concentration camps across various parts of of Europe. And and what we see in this is that neighbours, German neighbours who were one day friendly with their Jewish uh, Jewish neighbours, all of a sudden it was like a, a switch was flicked and all of a sudden they were complicit in their rejection of the, the Jewish people, their persecution of the Jewish people through either rejection or through, we might even say through omission, through not acting justly. Just because the government tells you to do something does not mean that you should do it. If the government, Romans 13, we touched on this a number of months ago, the government is put in place as a principle by God to to, uh, establish righteousness. Who defines righteousness? God defines righteousness. If the government acts unjustly, we are not... uh, as, as people of faith not compelled to engage in injustice just because the government said so. And so what happened in Egypt is what happened in Nazi Germany and, and in parts of Europe. People either were complicit because they participated or they were complicit because they were choosing to be willfully ignorant or turning a blind eye. So why did it impact the whole nation? Because ultimately the whole nation was was guilty. Let's uh, let's reread verses thirty one and thirty. This is thirty two. This is uh, Pharaoh speaking here. He summoned Moses to Aaron during the night and said, "Get out immediately from among my people, both you and the Israelites, and go worship the Lord as you have said. Take even your flocks and your herds, as you asked, and leave, and also bless me." Finally, the hardest heart has been humbled the most. What we have here is a point of resignation. Everything that Pharaoh has refused to give in on, letting them go. He suggested that the men could go, but the women should stay. He suggested that they could go, but they must leave their flocks and herds. And now, under under compulsion, absolute compulsion, he is resigned to, to let them go. He's also, the Bible hints here, resigned to acknowledge the greatness of God uh, in the dynamic of he's asking Moses and an Aaron to bless him. What I find sad, though, when I read this is he is humbled to the point of resignation, but not to the point of repentance. And we know that because of what he does next in his pursuit of the people. He's humble to the point of resignation, but not to the point of repentance. And what does God want of all of us? He wants us to be humbled, to either humble ourselves or to be humbled, to the point of repentance so that he can re-establish and restore, transform by the power of his spirit. This cannot happen because Pharaoh's not willing, he's unwilling to be humbled to the point of repentance. 
What we see in this is that God is victorious. God's people are free. But the cost was great to those who rejected God. The cost was great to those who dishonoured God's people. But to those who let God be Lord, what we have here is deliverance. What is God's motivation, his heart motivation behind the plagues is to set his people free. And that has been achieved, sadly, at great cost. But uh, we, we have to say that what had to be done was done for the sake of God's people. There's a reason why this is one of the most significant moments in, in, in Israel's history and, and why it is recounted more than any other throughout the centuries and millennia that followed. When we look throughout the Old Testament from here on, right up to Malachi, uh, we see that this constant repetition of pointing back to this very moment, the most significant moment. And why is it the most significant moment? Well, it is so because it is a declaration. We might say it's the first declaration to the whole world that, that God is superior, that God's people, because of the God of heaven, will be victorious. And they'll be victorious over all other peoples. They'll be victorious over all other gods because the God of heaven is superior to every false god every uh, supernatural entity who has set itself up as authority over the hearts and minds of the other nations. This is significant because it's a declaration to the nations and the nations hear about this. Even although there weren't tabloids, there wasn't uh, smartphones with your breaking news alert, your notification, um, there, there wasn't any of that but news travels fast especially when something as significant as this happens. The nations learned of God's power. And what we see is that in this very event, we, we see, as, as uh, Tony Marida says, one of the commentaries that I've been using in this journey, the Christ-centred exposition, exalting Jesus in Exodus. It's an excellent commentary. Tony Marida note, notes in this that, uh, that in this event we see God's power, we see God's mercy and we see God's justice. We see God's power, his mercy and justice. We see his power because of the demonstrations of power. We see his mercy because of his protection over those who trust in his name. And we see his justice because of the judgment that falls upon all those who have been uh, willful in their sin. This moment is marked in two significant ways, and I want to just read some more of God's word here from the first portion of chapter 12, the first 14 verses. This moment we've come to know as the Passover moment is marked in two significant ways. But let me just read the word first and then we'll come to that. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's families, one animal per family. 
if the household is too small for the whole animal, that person and the neighbour nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each will eat. You must have an unblemished animal, a year old male. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat them. They are to eat the meat that night. They should eat it roasted over a fire along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roasted over fire. Its head as well as its legs and inner organs. You must not leave any of it until morning. Any part of it left until morning you must burn. Here is how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You're to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day is to be a memorial for you and you must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You are to celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statute. This moment is marked in two significant ways. The first is that the calendar is reset. This moment becomes the defining moment in the birth of a nation. We also see that the Passover meal is instituted, that there is a celebration, a feast, a festival, purpose to tell the story of this moment, to tell the story of this moment and also to point towards the future. It, it marks the moment of substitutionary atonement. There is a war on that, that biblical principle now in a lot of today's church. And I want to just encourage us that this is a significant dynamic of our faith. This marks the moment of substitutionary atonement. When the blood of another is shed to act as a distinguishing mark for God's people and to protect them from a coming judgment. We can see how it relates to this moment in Exodus, but also how it points to the future. 12 verse 3. What do we see here? Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's families. This substitute comes from within. 12 verse 4. If the household is too small for the whole animal, that person and the neighbour nearest his house are to select one based on a combined number of people. Apportion the animal according to what each will eat. This moment is to be significant in a family, a household, 
and also with neighbours. This is a corporate act of worship. We also see that in verse 6, that they are to, as a whole assembly, slaughter the animal at twilight. It is a corporate act of worship. 12 verse 5, you must have an unblemished animal, a year old male. The substitute must be unblemished. Only the very best will do. Perfection is important in this moment. And then 12 verse 14. This day is to be a memorial for you. You must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. Celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statue. It's, it's to be a memorial throughout all generations. A permanent statue. Why is that? Because it doesn't just point back to God's faithfulness and his deliverance. As, as if people should only rely on what God did in the past, but it remains relevant because of what it symbolises for every subsequent generation. That the bloodshed from an unblemished substitute will provide a distinguishing mark on those who trust in God. And that distinguishing mark from the unblemished substitute will save from a judgment to come. Can we see Jesus in this? Isn't that incredible? We give thanks to God. God is looking to tell a story of redemption through this moment, not just redemption from captivity uh, in Egypt, but redemption from the captivity of sin and death. And so we give thanks to God for his grace and mercy in teaching us his truth. Let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you as we go back through this familiar passage. Perhaps you draw truths, nuggets, you re-emphasize or consolidate things that we've heard before. Father, help us to understand you more, to hear and know your heart, and to live differently as a result of all that you reveal to us. Help us. In Jesus' name, by the power of your Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you.